You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. episode of The Murder of My Family, we discussed the heart-wrenching case of little Rachel Runyon and how after 36 years, her mother Elaine is still waiting for answers in the murder of her little girl. In this episode, we talk with another mother named Jennifer Millsap, who has agonized over the murder of her daughter April Millsap. Like in Rachel's case, April's murder was a cold and senseless one, and in the blink of an eye, it changed her family's lives forever. If there's any kind of bright spot in April's case, it's that her killer was caught, tried, and convicted for her murder. That won't bring back April to her family, but at the very least, they know that the man who's responsible is locked away in a prison and won't get the chance to hurt somebody else. It's because of this positive outcome that I chose to end season one of The Murder in My Family with April's case. It gives us all hope that justice sometimes prevails and that sometimes the bad guys don't get away. Our maid in Michigan is where 14-year-old April Millsap called home, not even classified as a town, but rather a village. Our maid boasts a population of just under 2,000 people. Located an hour or so north of Detroit, it's not the kind of place that's used to seeing shocking crimes happen within its borders. That's one reason why April Millsap wasn't worried when she left her home to walk her beloved dog Penny on the afternoon of July 24, 2014, something she did on a regular basis that summer. Often stopping to talk to friends along the way, it wasn't unlike her to lose track of time and be out on her walks for a while. One of April's favorite routes consists of a wooded trailed area about a mile from her home. The area, known as the Macomb Orchard Trail, was often used there for dog walks, jogging, and biking. It seemed like so many days before for April, and nothing was out of the ordinary that day. That is, until April's boyfriend, Austin, received a strange text from her. The text read, I think I almost got kidnapped. O-M-F-G. Austin didn't know what to think. It didn't seem serious, but rather more like something a teenage girl might say after spotting a creepy guy checking her out. April didn't send another text. The time was around 6.30 p.m. A short time later, just after 7 p.m., a man named Matthew Sadaj and his wife were out walking on the trail when they noticed a dog standing by itself along a ditch. The couple didn't pay much attention to it and kept on walking. A few minutes later, as they made their way back, they once again passed the dog. This time they noticed that the dog was whimpering and standing over what appeared to be a pile of trash just off the trail. They looked closer and discovered that the dog wasn't standing over a pile of trash but rather the body of a teenage girl. Sadaj quickly dialed 911 on his cell phone. Nine one one. Um, yeah, we can, I'm fairly certain we just found a body along the uh, mountain bike trail. Okay, where are you at? Um, I'm at the 
The audio quality of that 911 call isn't the best, but the caller stated that the girl's clothes were off. Police headed to the scene to investigate. Around 8 p.m., April's mother Jennifer began to wonder where April was. Her daughter had been gone longer than normal, but since it was summertime and April was a teenager, her mom didn't immediately think the worst. Jennifer texted her daughter repeatedly and didn't get a response. She decided to meet up with April's boyfriend Austin to look for April and the two went out to some of the areas that she usually walked Penny in. Besides the odd texts he had received, Austin hadn't heard from April. As Jennifer and Austin started to search for April, it was dark, around 9 p.m. Jennifer and Austin split up to cover more area. As Austin searched near the Macomb Orchard Trail, he noticed police activity near the trail entrance and spotted an animal control vehicle. He made his way over to see what was going on, but police were tight-lipped. Austin called Jennifer on his cell phone and told her that something was going on and that she needed to come over there. Jennifer headed frantically to the area, but police kept her at bay. Back on the trail, detectives were processing the spot where the body had been found, and they quickly determined that it was a crime scene and that the female victim was definitely murdered. The body displayed trauma to the head, face, and neck areas, and apparently a hard, blunt object was used to bludgeon her. Police felt immediately that there were indications that she had been the victim of an attempted rape as her clothes were found to have been torn off her body. Later, medical investigation would reveal that there was no rape, and it led to the possibility that the killer had abandoned plans of raping the victim, possibly because he feared he would be discovered on the trail. Medical examination would also estimate the time of death as being sometime between 6.30 p.m. and 7 p.m., and the coroner's report noted 48 injuries to the body. Meanwhile, Jennifer Millsap had told police at the scene that her daughter was missing after taking her dog for a walk, and they sent her down to the police station. Jennifer sat at the police station for what seemed like hours, wondering what was happening and if April was okay. Finally, Jennifer learned that a body had been found, but she wasn't told until the next day that the body was that of her daughter, April. As Jennifer was left to deal with the devastating news that her daughter was dead, 
the police investigation continued. Detectives determined that April's cell phone and backpack were missing. Analysis determined that April had been beaten with what was likely a motorcycle helmet, and her killer had stomped her with shoes that left distinct herringbone tread impressions. Police were aided a great deal when an eyewitness came forward who claimed that they had seen April talking to a man on a blue, white, and black dirt bike-style motorcycle shortly before April was killed. The witness was able to help police create a composite of the suspect. She described the motorcycle rider as being white, in his mid to late 20s, clean-shaven, and having bushy or curly hair. Police released a sketch and description of the suspect and his motorcycle, and they were soon flooded with tips. It wasn't long before police developed what they felt was a strong suspect, a 34-year-old man named James Van Callis. Police, armed with search warrants, carried out a search of James Van Callis's Good Olds, Michigan home. After learning that Van Callis had requested a special trash pickup at his home days after April's murder, police also searched a local landfill. During these searches, police found a pair of shoes belonging to Van Callis, with tread that matched the tread marks on April's body. Eventually, police arrested Van Callis and one other man, not for the murder of April Millsap, but rather in connection with an illegal marijuana grow operation. But all the while, police were confident Van Callis was the man that killed April. The FBI aided police in tracking April's movements. Using data from a fitness tracker app, an FBI investigator was able to recreate the final steps April took. They were able to extract information from a sports tracker app on April's cell phone and combine it with location information on Google Earth to create an animation that showed the path April took while walking her dog. The findings also showed the path April's phone took away from the trail through neighborhoods and into a field, likely taken by her killer as he fled the scene. After months of investigation, despite not having DNA or fingerprint evidence against Van Callis linking him to April's murder, police arrested him and charged him with first-degree premeditated murder, felony murder, kidnapping, and assault with intent to commit sexual penetration. In January of 2016, Van Callis went to trial for April Millsap's murder. At trial, the defense attorney for Van Callis argued that there was no DNA, fingerprint, or physical evidence linking Van Callis to the crime. The prosecution countered with surveillance video of Van Callis leaving the area following the murder, as well as eyewitness testimony. His shoes and motorcycle helmet also played a role in the prosecution's case, but it was the testimony of both his brother and ex-girlfriend that did Van Callis in. His brother testified that James Van Callis asked him to delete their messages from the night of the murder. Van Callis's ex-girlfriend also testified that later on the night of the murder, she witnessed Van Callis cleaning his shoes with hand sanitizer. She also claimed that she found human hair in one of his pockets and that he told her, quote, I messed up. You need to stand by me. Despite the prosecution not having slam-dunk physical evidence, the jury convicted James Van Callis after two weeks of trial. In March of 2016, he was sentenced to life in prison without parole. For Jennifer Millsap, who took the stand at the trial of her daughter's killer, it was a bittersweet outcome. The man that took her daughter's life is in prison, presumably for the rest of his life. But Jennifer is faced with the reality of not having her daughter, April, for the rest of her life. A daughter who Jennifer described as having been artistic and having a love for animals. Jennifer Millsap joined me to discuss the loss of her daughter, and when we sat down to talk about April's case, I could sense the pain she still feels. It's only been two years since the trial and conviction, and I appreciate Jennifer opening up about something that's still so fresh and painful. Please be aware as you listen to this interview with Jennifer 
that she suffers from a condition called cerebral ataxia, which causes muscular and speech problems. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for coming on to discuss April's case with us. As we're talking now, it's July, coming up on the fourth anniversary since April was murdered. So I can only imagine that this is a tough time of year for your family. It is. And if you can, just tell us a little bit about April, who she was as a, as a person. She's a very friendly young lady. Um, she liked shopping like most teenagers her age do. Um, she loved animals. She loved her, her pets. Her dogs and her cats. She um, liked to draw. She was a good artist. Uh, she was into writing a lot. She liked her short stories. She wrote a lot of poetry and short stories. So she was very she was very active and uh, had a lot of different interests. It sounds like. Yeah, she was. She wasn't very athletic, but she liked the healthy lifestyle, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. And and she, one of the things she liked to do, I guess, was walk her dog, and that's what happened the day she went missing. Yes, it was. So was that her regular routine, was to walk her dog every day? Mm, not every day, but when she felt like it. Well, most of the time when she was off of school, like she was for the summer, she would take the dog for a walk. It's no set time, no. Just whenever she was bored or felt like going out or she wanted to meet, meet her boyfriend, <laughs> she used the dog as an excuse. So, you know, just being a typical teenager, she wanted to get out of the house sometimes, and she'd walk her dog sometimes to do it. Yeah, she used the dog to meet her friends. Yeah. And did she usually go on the same paths when she went out with the dog? There was like three or four different routes that she would take, but that, yeah, pretty close together. You know, one time she'd go left instead of right. But pretty much the same, three, three, four different routes. And was she normally out for certain lengths of time? Were you, did you usually expect her back by certain times? Uh, we, yes. I, when she, well, when she took the dog, of course, the dog can't be out for hours and hours. But um, she would take the dog if she would going to meet somebody else who would come back and go back out and let me know that hey I'm meeting so and so here and then if if she didn't uh, connect with him within the set time we communicated through the phone and did you feel the night that she went missing that there was something wrong did you get a, a feeling that there was something not right not right away, because uh, when she first went out, I was job hunting, and we were, what were we doing? We were, we were 
excuse me, we were redoing a bathroom, so I was filling out the bathroom so that we could begin construction. So I didn't think anything of it. Kind of lost track of time, so to speak, as to where she was. And then when it started getting dark, that's when I started, you know, first I... I don't want to say I wasn't concerned about her, but for her to be gone this long with the dog was kind of odd. For her to be gone that long without the dog, I wouldn't have thought much of it. But seeing that she had the dog with her and no food, no water for the dog. And at at that point, did your family call anybody or start looking or... uh... I started I started with the text to her and then when I didn't hear from her I uh texted her boyfriend and thought maybe she met up with him but he was out running errands for another friend of his so he didn't hear from her. And when he did hear from her then the text text for me got more and more frequent staple. Then how did you first get the word that there was something wrong that they had found her? How how were you notified about that? Austin and I were all looking. I mean, we, we went through the three or four different routes that she would take. Austin and his friend. And then as he was out Searching one path, he noticed uh, some police activity and animal control around the area that she was found. And that's when he called me and he told me, "Hey, they're not talking. To, they're not talking to him, but for him to get over there, for me to get over there." And so you actually went to the to the scene. I would not to the actual scene, but they kind of kept us off the trail, but close. And did they tell you right at that time that she had been murdered? They did not. They did not tell us anything. I pretty much explained the situation that she she left around five thirty. Uh, it is now. It was down like nine o'clock. It was dark already. And that she wasn't home yet, and that's when they took us to the to the police station. We'll be sat for hours and hours and hours before they told us anything. And they did at that time. They still did not tell us there was her until the next day. But hints were being dropped. Well, so- not hints, but. Like when reporters were coming up, and my husband would, he had to go outside back and forth, and he kind of picked up on a few. And hints is the wrong word, but they were kind of leaving clues. So you sort of had some kind of feeling that there was something really bad wrong. Yeah, once we were at the police station, yeah. <laughs> And when you finally did get the news that she had been murdered, how did, how did you handle that? I can't even imagine as a parent myself, but how did you handle that news? How do you go about processing it, that? 
I I could have passed that because I mean we're such a small town that I would never have thought that could happen to to me. It happens to other people. It doesn't happen to me. So I was, I was shocked. I was shocked. I was upset. Understandably upset. But I just was... I don't know. Dumbfounded doesn't sound like the right word to use either. But I just... I didn't know what to think. And it came out that April's boyfriend had received the text that he thought was from April... And she said in the text that she had almost been kidnapped. Um, looking back, you know, she had good reason to, to be worried about that. Did they say anything about that text, or did you learn anything about that text? Well, I could infer that she, she, she said that text, like, on her first encounter with James before... He attacked her I mean, when he passed her on, on the trail and she got a bad feeling about him then and she just wanted to get home. So I'm assuming that's when she sent the text and Austin never got it. Well, he got it, but he was, he was in an area where uh, cell service was choppy at best. So he didn't get it till like an hour later. By then it was kind of too late. And you you just mentioned the name James because police started working on the case and they eventually found the suspect, James Van Callis. How did it yeah. how did it feel at that time to know that they had somebody that they thought was responsible for April's murder? It was I don't want to say leaving, but it was comforting is the right word either, but it it was the fact that they had somebody and that this case didn't go on for years and years and years like you like I see and we'll see it. most of these ID shows would could drag out. I was glad that they got somebody, but still, it, it wasn't going to bring it back, and it, it wasn't going to, it wasn't going to fix things. Yeah, so it doesn't bring April back, but it gives you at least, you know, you're you have an answer pretty quickly. Um, and yeah, when, when they actually arrested him. Did that feel like a little bit more closure um, to to knowing who had done it? Well, when they first arrested him, it wasn't for the murder. It was for drug charges, which at that point we didn't put two, two together. But it was a little bit closer to closure. But like I said, it, it's not... It wasn't fulfilling because she wasn't coming back. But it was nice that they got him off the streets and and um, he's not going to do it to anybody else. And 
you went to court. I actually found some videos of you at court. Um, and what was your role in in the trial? I pretty much was an observer. Um, I didn't have much of a role but to sit there and listen to what, everything unfold. And at the end, he was found guilty. Um, and did that give you, you know, again, that's not going to bring April back, but did it give you a little bit more sense that you could maybe put it behind you and start to move forward with things? A little bit. I just would have liked to know his motivation as to why he had to go to go to such extreme measures. I mean, okay, a pretty girl rejected him. Why did he have to hurt her like he did? So you sort of have unanswered questions about him and why he did what he did. And answered questions, yes, as to the biggest point is why he did what he did. I just don't understand why, just because you were rejected by a girl half her age, why resort to that, that extreme, you know? And the good news, if there's any good news here, is that he was sentenced and his sentence was upheld. How many years was he sentenced to? I, I think he got two life sentences plus another 20 years. So does it give you any kind of comfort knowing that he won't hurt somebody else's daughter? Yeah, it does. I mean, I just wish they would have caught him beforehand, but... Yeah, he's not going to hurt anybody else. So how are you personally doing today and, you know, your family? How are you doing coping with with the aftermath? Pretty much take one day at a time. It's, it's hard, especially like, uh, well, like I said, it's come close to anniversary date, which is just three days after my birthday. So that. That stings even more because knowing that my birthday's coming up and three days later my little girl was gone. But in like her birthdays, Christmas, holidays, this is hard, but I got family around for support. Yeah, and that's it sort of opens those old wounds up with those anniversaries. Yes, it does. Well, I do have a support group that I go to every month that maybe I don't talk much about it, but just sitting there listening helps. And is that a support group for people with for, murdered family members? Not murdered, but deceased children. And even listening, even if you don't talk a lot, listening helps you. Yeah, it does, but, uh, and it helps, even though my situation is a lot different than all these other people in this group because all their kids died from disease or, like, a drug overdose, but none of them were actually murdered. So it helps, but then it doesn't help. They understand, but they don't understand fully. 
because their situation is different than it wasn't as tragic as mine. Not to not to lessen their pain because they lost their kids too. But I don't know if I'm explaining it right, but it's just different. Yeah, you're you're in a group of people that you know many parents could never imagine themselves being in, so that's totally understandable. They understand, but they don't. It wasn't a tragedy that took their kids, and I don't want to lessen their situations at all. But it's just not the same. Would you recommend a group like that to people out there that are maybe going through a similar situation? Do, do you think that would help them as well, possibly? Yes, it would. Yes. Strongly. Well, I I hope that moving forward that each day is a little bit better than the day before. And as time goes by, you can find some kind of peace and, you know, still cherish your memories of April. We're trying. We're we're trying. I have a lot of faith in the church and my uh, community, church community, my uh, small town that we live in is like a big family, which is very helpful. And that's what keeps me going. Well, I appreciate you coming on, Jennifer, and and sharing your story and and talking about April's case. And it's one that scares. A lot of people, you know, if they have children, this is the ultimate fear. So I appreciate you opening up. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. This 10th episode wraps up Season 1. But don't worry, I'll be back in a few weeks on September 22nd, 2018 to kick off Season 2 of The Murder of My Family, the first of 10 new cases. If you enjoy this podcast please take a moment to rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts so that the show can continue to reach new listeners. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderinmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at murderinmyfam or by searching for the Murder in My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon, it's always appreciated. And you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder of my family. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder of my family. In each episode, I'll give shout outs to any new supporters. In this episode, I'd like to thank Mary Beth Long, Kate Morse, and the True Crime Fan Club podcast. Thanks to all the supporters that generously donate and keep the podcast going. Your support is appreciated and helps the show grow and improve. As we wrap up this episode, be sure to check out previews for two true crime podcasts that I listen to and I think you'll enjoy. Nature vs. Narcissism and Status Pending. Both of these are hosted or co-hosted by my friends Heather Wright and Scott Fuller. Until next time, remember, every murder victim means something to somebody. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. 
Hey guys, I'm Heather. And I'm Rochelle. And, and we're, we're from, from Nature vs. Narcissism, Narcissism, a true crime podcast mixed with some dark humor. Sometimes we have alcohol. Sometimes we have guests. Since I've always been fascinated by true crime, I wanted to delve deeper into the criminal mind and discuss why these criminals commit these vile acts. Was it nature? Was it nurture? Or was it just plain old narcissism? Join us every week for a brand new episode. You can find us on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, and Podbean. Don't, Don't call, call the, the cops! cops. Bye! Bye. There are many true crime podcasts available, each offering a different perspective to the genre. Each with their own niche that pulls the listener in by tugging at their heartstrings or their funny bone in one way or another. What we aim to do with Status Pending is make you think. We want you to feel as though you're connected to the case. We want you to feel something. The cases we're going to cover have discrepancies of some sort and may or may not be well known. They are either unsolved, prematurely closed, or open without any solid leads. We want to get these stories out to the public, for the family, and for the victims. Join us every month for a different case, which will be a different chapter in our podcast, as we take a three-part look into the facts. We'll have interviews, expert opinions, and more. And we'll also be looking for suggestions from you for cases to take on as we move forward. You can email us at statuspendingpodcasts at gmail.com. And you can subscribe to Status Pending wherever you listen to podcasts.